Welcome to the Payroll Podcast, the show that explores the latest insights and innovations in the world of payroll. I'm Nick Day, founder of JGA Recruitment, a specialist global payroll search firm. I'm also a qualified executive coach and a recognized Reward 300 member. And my goal for this show is clear, is to bring you expert guests and payroll leaders who are driving this industry forward. From cutting edge technologies and trends to compliance, analytics, automation, leadership strategies and more we're gonna cover it all on this show to help you to deliver accurate and timely payrolls across your organizations so let's join together in raising the strategic profile of payroll worldwide grab your coffee or your favorite beverage and let's get started Hello, everybody, and welcome back to today's October edition of Payroll Question Time. National minimum wage rates have been announced. We've, you were talking a minute ago about the real living wage uh, also increasing, I think, and some, some other changes as well. So we'll get through all of those in due course. I just wanted to add as well that there will be two polls during today's episode. So if you can all take part in those, we will try and comment on the results of those as we go through. We are, of course, recording this session. So for those of you that have registered, on the uh, SDWorks website, you will get a copy uh, of today's recording, so you don't have to take notes. Now, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nick Day. I'm CEO of JGA Recruitment Group. We're a specialist payroll recruiter. We've just launched in the US as well, so we specialize in recruiting payroll staff across Europe and in the US. I'm also a Ward 300 member. I've been in the industry now for two decades, not as long as some of the people on this panel, but it feels like a long time to me. And uh, that's probably enough about me for the moment. Let's get into our Big panel we've got today. I'm going to start with yourself, Richard George. It's great to have you back. Absolutely. Good afternoon, everybody. It's lovely to be back after a couple of months of recovery. Uh, so my name is Richard George, Group uh, Education Director uh, for the Payroll Centre and Accounts Payable. Um, like uh, Nick, War 300, a little bit longer in the industry than him, um, which I'm not proud of. Um, <laughs> involved in a number of government panels and obviously uh, in charge of education and learning for the largest space-based payroll company. Fantastic. I'm moving from my left to right, Andy Nichols, if you can introduce yourself, please. Hi, all. Um, yeah, um, work for the pensions regulator, really to look after, try and help the payroll industry with automatic enrollment. Um, being a regulator 10 years now, but prior to that was um, a career in payroll, which is probably why they recruited me to help yourselves. regarding yeah, pensions. fantastic, of course. For those of you who do have any pensions-related questions, Andy will be on side as well to help us with those. So it doesn't just have to be related to payroll. As a reminder, if you have a pensions question, put it in the questions box. I'll do my best to answer that as well. And of course, our newest member of the PQT panel, Karen Thompson. Hello, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm Karen Thompson. I am very proud to say I've been in the industry for more than well, three decades. I started, of course, when I was five, unlike Richard. So I'm very proud to say it. And I look forward to being able to be contributing to this wonderful panel. Let's jump into today's discussion topics. Today's discussion topics are, should payroll be tax advisors? And that's something we're definitely going to need Simon to be back online for something I know he's passionate about talking about, uh, the real living wage update, holiday pay, what's your disaster recovery plan, the latest from the SD Works Academy, a pensions update from our experts, Annie Nichols, and any hot topics or additional questions you haven't got through by that point, we will try and get through then as well. Well, hopefully we've got Simon's audio back. If we have, let's jump into this first topic then of should payroll be tax advisors? And I say this because... We say in our disclaimer, we say a lot on this show, of course, we are not tax advisors, 
But should payable professionals be? Should that change? Let's start with you, Simon. I hope we've got some audio. If not, I'm going to come across to you, Karen. Simon. Yeah, can you hear me now? Don't know what was happening with the headset. Uh, it just wouldn't let me unmute for a while, but uh, seemed I had to unplug it and replug it in. So should we be tax professionals? I think we think we're tax professionals and tax advisors and can give it. And I don't know the position of some of the other guys, but actually um, I, I thought I'd look into this some years ago, Nick, and I did. In fact, it's nearly four years ago, four and a half years ago. I did register myself as a tax advisor. So I have full AML registration uh, coverage with Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs and went through various processes and paid my fees. The reality is um, I would say that tax advice is regulated activity. The HMRC may say it's not, but actually tax advisors are regulated under anti-money laundering law. So, which, uh, so it's an element of whether there's a compliance to AML legislation that goes into it, which is uh, sort of where I'm thinking. But I think we all think we're very helpful people and we like to give advice. And if we know the answer, don't we? So we give it. Uh, and and I'll, I'll even point towards Andy. I, I, as a trained pension trustee, I know quite a bit about pensions and quite often people come and ask me a question. But one of the first things they teach you in your pension trustee training is you're not allowed to give pensions advice. So it becomes a bit of a dichotomy because quite often we do know the answer, but can we give it? Allow us some others to give some thought. Well, actually, even as a, an entrepreneur, as a business owner, I've been ca called into that pensions question where employees ask me if they should or shouldn't have a pension, should they opt in or opt out? And I have to say, it's nothing to do with me. You've got to make your own decisions and uh, and speak to the, the, the necessary providers. And that's, I'm sure there are other owners out there that have been in the same situation. But let's just jump into what I mentioned there on the pension side, Andy. What's, what's your view? Um, yeah, individual advice is regulated. And that you need an IFA. Go to FCA website, find a good IFA, etc. And they'll give you advice because it's one to one. You need that. It's regulated. But technically, business to business is not regulated. But on the other hand, do you do you really want to give advice when that employer might then turn around or that client might turn around and say, you gave me that advice and it's gone wrong? And then what what is your contractual relationship? It's all going to go not good, is it? So give the facts. That's what we would say as a regulator. Give the facts, uh, but not advice. So, Karen, let me come to you, because obviously you, you're at AAB, you manage multiple client payrolls. I just look, picking up on what Andy said there, that it's OK, it's, it's regulated B2C, but not B2B. Does that mean that you're able to give tax advice to your clients? Absolutely not. Um, now, <laughs> I agree with Simon. Could I put my hand up and say I have never given advice with a caveat? No. Um, I will say not at AAB, um, <laughs> as I need to. But no, it's it's always one of those things. The problem we have, I think, is clients expect payroll to give. If you take something in particular, benefits in kind would be a classic. Because we payroll benefits in kind, the assumption is we can then advise on benefits in kind. And one of the key messages I try and give is that if a client comes back to Andy's point on fact, if a client says to me, 
I have a company car. Can you operate it? What do you do? I can tell them because that's that's rules. If they say, should I operate vans or should I operate cars? That's tax advice. And therefore, I will not give that advice. And I would refer it to a tax advisor. Some of the things, the issues I think coming out is that there are some tax advisors out there that aren't qualified to perhaps give tax advice. And I think that I think Simon was alluding to that as well. And that's where the waters can get a bit muddy. But I would always recommend a tax advisor should give tax advice. But payroll can certainly direct and certainly give fact when it's on how to treat something. Sure. How about your, your experience, Richard? I know that uh, a lot of people yeah, will be so watching this. I, I, where's the distinction? Where does it where does the distinction lie? Well, I think I come in from a very different angle. And if Sam from CIPP was here, we'd probably be on the same wavelength because um, between the two of us, you're probably looking at the biggest helplines in the industry. Um, you know, we have probably uh, 40 calls a day on a busy day, um, which can cover every area. And the principle goes back to Simon. You know, all we can do and all we do is tell people the legislation. What are the rules? What is out there that is, you know, that you could actually look up yourself on gov.uk or wherever it may be as to how things need to be treated? The bigger problem, I think, is in-house. You know, if you're in-house, you're working with colleagues, you're working with people you know, you want to help. And I think very common or very, it's very common for people in payroll to overhelp because they think they're doing the person a favour and end up actually causing more trouble than they do. We will never give advice on our helpline um, that doesn't relate to the legislation. Um, hence, we will always tell you the legislation and then usually tell you where to find it um, so that you therefore have that backup as well to then take to whoever's asking. But it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hornet's nest of creating liability um, that, that you just don't need and you, you're not in a place to give because everything, as you say at the start of this, every situation is different um, and there is no way you can have the total knowledge of the background. You're only hearing one side of it. So it, it, it's a key area. And I say, I'm sure Sam would say the same. What if someone come up with a, 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 I've got a bit of a scenario that I'm just formed in my head. So bear with me. I'll try and see if it makes a friend sense. of yours. Which everyone on this panel and most people <laughs> listening and watching this, everyone's passionate about raising the profile of payroll. OK, so let's assume that someone in the C-suite, a chief executive, comes to the payroll manager and says, I want some advice on how we can. I think someone mentioned benefit in kind and things like that. Some of the things we can introduce that allows our business. And I think Simon also said Beta or Alice said B2B may be OK. So that our business is more tax efficient through some of the payroll process that we're delivering. Well, what's the best kind of reaction to that? We're not talking about employees. It's not an individual pace that we're commenting on, but we do want to make a tax efficient payroll service. Are we crossing the line there? Is that something that we not, to give not if you stick to not if you stick to the rules? You know, there is something called a TIPA, which many people will understand, which explains how everything is treated and how everything must be treated. And the principle is, yes, you can give them a, you know, a slew of benefits and explain to them what the tax liabilities or efficiencies of each are for them then to make an educated decision. But you can't say, well, look, if you come around here, we do this, this, this and this, we can do X, Y and Z, because you're creating a, a negative influence on a situation. So I think it's just having the strength to, I guess, rely on what you can back up that can support a question, I think. Would the panel concur with that? I see Simon nodding. 
Well, I was going to say I'd go further than that in the fact that whilst I agree with Richard, we could look at let's take reward benefits and say, here's how you treat them all. But don't forget as well, if a business is saying they're looking for tax efficiencies within payroll, that's not just the IT per an income tax. This could be other things that a business might do out with my remit that could save them on corporation tax, that could save them with battles. With, you know. So don't forget, I would say the tax system goes beyond pay as you earn and IT pay when you're looking at termination payments or benefits in kind of something. So again, you can only go so far. And I would have to say, I can help you understand what this lot's about, but there could be other efficiencies that you would need to seek advice from an accountant tax advisor, a financial planner, if it was to do with which pension scheme should they choose uh, or anything like that. Super. Uh, so what, are, what are the risks if you fall into that dangerous territory of giving advice? What, what, what's, what's the potential outcome? Tom? Well, there's a, there's a couple of aspects, and just if I cover, internal advice is potentially not tax advice. So if you come to from your business that you're employed by and you're not being paid, for that you're employed by them there's an element of a lot more liberalization of what you can do and say the challenge often is you don't have the knowledge to cover it all so i think there's an element of it being just a source of information the the trouble comes for example for karen and i is when a client comes to us the situation is entirely different because i'm not employed by you so and i'm likely to charge fees for work i do because I'm not a charity, uh, and 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 that's where the tax advice regulation comes in. So uh, the risks involved in that is that potentially you could be reported. Now you could say that's fine if the advice was great, but they don't come and police you for whether your advice was great. They come and police you on whether you've done the due diligence or the risk assessment associated with the tax. And I'm sure a lot of people are saying, what do you want about, Simon? Well, if you're AML regulated, you have a responsibility to do due diligence on all your clients. So you have to find out who owns them and verify they're not attached to criminal or susceptible activity. For example, an MP owned as part of an ownership or a director's board would be susceptible. Doesn't mean you can't work for them. It just means they've got a heightened uh, uh, risk associated with them. Um, you know, it might be a foreign government you're doing work for, or um, it, recently, of course, with the Ukraine invasion, attached or associated with Russian ownership. So therefore, there are sanctions involved. And that's the risk, is if you're going into that market, you are liable or obligated to undertake due diligence. And then for your activity, do risk assessment of that activity. Now, many payroll um, situations, the risk assessment is likely to be low. I pay their staff, I calculate this, I've done this. But some activity could be high, and we're seeing in the press lots of organizations that are getting involved in things. For example, HMRC keep on naming people involved in tax avoidance schemes, which they state don't work. Um, 
Uh, and so there's an element of just making sure the boundaries are clear and that you're all watertight. So due diligence and what's the risk are important elements. The risk may be low, but if AML people come and, or I can't remember what they're called now, the uh, um, they used to be called the AML team. They're now called, is it criminal, uh, something rather, whatever. If they come along and they ask to see your due diligence records and you haven't got them, you will end up with a hefty penalty, thousands of pounds. They will fine you. Whether any anti-money laundering has taken place or not doesn't really matter what they're interested in, have you uh, fulfilled your obligations? Good. Okay, well, let's, um, let's take this to the... Sorry, if anyone wants to add anything, but I'm going to take it to the audience. Yeah, I, the I, think, I think there's another side, especially for payrollers. Um, know your limits is very key. Um, there are people out here, and there's a statement I've said more than I like, um, the likes of EY, the likes of PWC, the likes of AA, you know, where Karen works, they charge a lot of money for help for a very, very good reason. Um, <laughs> and it's because the complexity and, and technical requirements to understand certain scenarios are outside of people's remit. But, but you want to help. You want to give your best advice, but your best advice could put you in a bigger problem than you started with. Yeah. And I think the best advice is really go and seek the advice of a tax specialist. I was going to yeah. say as well, don't forget the reason for charges and so forth is these companies would always, you would expect them to have some form of liability, professional indemnity sure. insurance. So I'm saying that all do. And if they don't, doesn't mean they're not qualified. But certainly firms, you know, like ourselves, that will have that, which is, you know, which protects the individual that they are giving yeah. that advice to. We, I mean, even at our give. level, we have to have it, Karen. It's yeah. Non-negotiable. You know, I wouldn't give it because I actually risk our insurance by doing so. Sure, sure. Let's jump into the uh, the audience, and I want to find out from the audience if, uh, as most of our audience are going to be payroll professionals, right? So, have they ever given tax advice as a payroll professional? Uh, just uh, a couple of options here. Yes, uh, it's within my remit sometimes, but with a caveat, and no, it's not my other expertise. So, we've had two questions come in. So, while we're waiting for the audience to uh, plug in those responses. I think we'll be interested in the results. We'll comment on those when we come through as well. I have two questions to ask our panel. So the first comes in from Suzanne that says, we are looking at our compliance in payroll. I'm reviewing on call and standby payments. If an employee is on call slash standby and doesn't attend an incident whilst on call, is it classed as working time for national minimum wage payment purposes? Karen, our newest member, maybe I'll come to you for that one. Thanks very much. Can I just put the caveat? That's employment law. Um, <laughs> however, I mean, I think you'd need to. My view here is you would need to look at what's in your contract, your contracts. You know, what is it? What do you say? Do you say that if they're on call and they don't turn up, that they won't be paid or that you view it as non-working? Um, you know, if I can't see if you're if they're expected to turn up and they don't, I would suggest that's some form of contractual issue. Um, mm. not sure if Simon's got a view on that, but I would say that's more contractual rather than, I mean, if they do go, then yes, I'd be including the I hours mean, worked within yes. national minimum wage. But if they don't turn up, they've not worked it. And therefore, it's not hours worked. We're not being inclined to agree. Simon, what, what, what do you think? 
Yeah, I think Karen's spot on. So if they're doing work, that time counts as national minimum wage time. If they're not doing any work, it doesn't. But I think just be careful also, the payment for being on standby doesn't necessarily count as pay for national minimum wage either because it doesn't relate to work. It's just the coverage. But it sounds like a discipline matter, doesn't it? If you're, they were yeah. on cover and they failed to respond, that sounds more like a, a, they've breached the agreement with the employer. Mm. Potentially, you unless, of expect- course, there's more than one person on standby and it's first first yeah. response. You, you would expect that in a process or terms of being on call out, there would be a section on the requirements, e.g., mm. what is our requirement? Should you be on standby? Um, and surely that would be the first point of backup. Yeah. So second question has come in. I'm being asked by Cafon for all my personal details so they can do a credit check on me, which I'm not particularly happy about. I guess it is due to FCA stuff. All I do is upload a file every month, so I cannot get my head around why I need to have this done. Can I not just provide a copy of my uh, DBA, which would, provo- which would prove my identity, etc.? Well, if I jump in there, Nick, I'm not sure if I know the answer to it. So I'd probably have to go away and look up some stuff. But there is an element of why. No, but why are they asking for that information? And what type of job is it? And what industry? And are there other industry rules? Okay, um, a little bit of clarification to come in, Simon. I'm going to give you a bit of an update. So it's it's CCAP online, so the GAYE upload from payroll. It gives you an upload from payroll. Oh, right. Um, Charities A Foundation. Right. Okay. Yes. I wouldn't have thought so, but it depends on the arrangement of the account. But uh, I'm just making it up now, Nick, to a certain extent. Um, mm-hmm. of, uh, it, it's something maybe we can go away and look up a bit more of why uh, CAF would require someone to load credit unless there's an element of having a bank account with them, but why it so regularly? Yeah. Yes. I was going to say it does seem a bit strange now that it's given as you earn. It, at least it, it's payroll. Yes. It was the, the other part of the security side that's through. I wonder. It's not linked, is it? I mean, I don't see how it would be. But you know how quite a lot now there's these APIs that are doing credit checks. You have know, somebody applies for a mortgage, yeah. and then because that data's there on the individual giving consent, it allows these companies to tap into the payroll data to confirm their earnings. It, I can't see how that would link with give as you earn, but is it is it linked with something within that maybe? Well, someone's responded here to say it's for money laundering regulations. Um, a director would, no- would normally supply their details. It's not an actual credit check that's been done. That's someone that's uh, commented to try and support the, the query. Um, uh, so they're checking the company. Yeah, I think Nick, that's where I was going with this one. Yes, but they'd only do that once. They wouldn't repeatedly do that for that same no. company. Mm. Okay. Well, maybe if you need further information, uh, yeah. Yeah, that sounds very much like we've just talked about in the fact of doing a due diligence process for AML if you're a payroll professional selling services to do tax advice. That similar sort of thing you kind of have to do. Absolutely. Well, thank you for the question. If you can give us further clarification, we'll uh, we'll investigate that. Thank you also, Karen, for your quick responses to those questions online as well. Right, let's jump back into the poll then. Uh, Have you ever given tax advice as a payroll professional? 
Let's have a look at some of those results. For those listening in audio only, we have 12% yes when it's within my remit. We have 35% say sometimes, but with a caveat. And 53% say no, it's not my area of expertise. Now, I've got to get some commentary on this. I'm going to come to uh, yourself, Simon. Yeah, it's interesting. Maybe we needed another little answer is, uh, uh, yes, I didn't think about it. I just do it anyway without uh, consideration. But it's good. So that sounds positive, doesn't it, that most people are making sure that they're uh, clean in their interactions. Yeah, I think maybe we should have had a, a fourth bot saying, I did until I watched this PQT and now I won't anymore. Uh, maybe it would come down a little yeah. bit more. Any further commentary from yourself, Karen, on those results, particularly because of your... Your experience working with different well, clients? Yeah, I can understand this sometimes with a caveat. I think quite, clients can put pressure on people. And as Richard and others have said, payroll professionals do tend to be extremely helpful. And therefore, if they know the answer and it's I don't I don't think you would go with full tax advice here, but it would be it maybe on the line. Hence the caveat. Um, I have seen me do this in the past with more employment law rather than tax that says, you know, this is my personal opinion based on experience. So I think people do that. But I would agree with Simon. Otherwise, it's encouraging to see that, you know, people do it in their email. And if it's not, they're not. Fantastic. Well, let's jump into our next part. Then we're going to go into the real living wage because employers who are paying the real living wage uh, to their lowest earning employees are going to face a 10% higher wage bill after Living Wage Foundation announced its new rates for 23-24. Um, who would like to kick us off? Let's come to, oh, you're nodding there, Simon. So I'm going to come to you again to give us a bit of an update on the real living wage changes. Yeah, sure. So the announcement was made on Tuesday morning, 24th of October. That's a little bit early. We've actually got the uh, living wage week coming up, which I think 6th of November from memory through. Um, that's sort of the critical start point of consideration. But the announcement was made uh, Tuesday morning, the new living wage rate is £12 per hour and the London living wage rate is £13.15. I'm saying that from memory, so hopefully I've got that correct. If you're accredited as a living wage employer, you have six months to implement those rates. Otherwise, you fail your accreditation. But that six months, I believe, starts from the beginning of the national or, – sorry, not national – forget national didn't say that the living wage week or the real living wage week so sometimes it's referred to as real living wage it's not actually called that uh, but uh, it seems to be referenced as the real living wage from the living wage foundation entirely voluntary of course unless you've signed up if you signed up you've got a contractual agreement with the living wage foundation to apply these rates yeah, but now um, I, I don't know, I assume it's still correct. I've got uh, my data says there are 14,000 living wage employers, including half of the FTSE 100 companies, and of course thousands of small businesses. So um, you know, it does impact does impact a lot of people. Yes. Around one in eight people, yes. 3.5 million jobs paid less than the, the real living wage. Uh, anything you'd like yeah, to add to that, about, uh, to Simon's surmise, Karen? Yeah, just saying it's growing at about 10% a year, isn't it, of um, members employees yeah, have signed up. I'm anticipating it'll increase from 3.5 to 4.3 million uh, in the next year or so. So, yeah, that sounds about right. It's uh, so what does this mean in terms of, of. Sorry, go on, Karen. 
I was just going to say, obviously, when you look at the national minimum wage, because I will say people do get confused with this. Um, even my own family will say, oh, I should be. It's like, no, no, no. But it's interesting. It was there, you know, at the conservative conference where they said that national minimum wage for the age would be a minimum of £11. So it's getting closer to the living wage, which I think is quite interesting and something to watch as well. Sure. So do we think this is going to result in more regular hours for zero hour workers? Well, 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 the other uh, campaign that they're coming out with is the is the living hours campaign. And I think the numbers of employers that have joined that is much less. But you can see that there's an emphasis here. And I think this goes back. Karen, we did get your message in the end at the uh, meeting, the payroll question time we had last time. I think I've forgotten the name, but they go and I'll Matthew forget Taylor. his name again Matthew today. Taylor. Matthew Taylor. People, I remember that one, Simon. <laughs> yes, but in effect, that this is promoting things that Matthew Taylor was promoting to the government to adopt. Yeah, I was going to say well, as well, the zero hours bits led from there's a workers. I'm looking at here a workers' predictable terms and conditions private members bill. And that's all been part of the same thing, which is where the workers can actually demand a pattern um, and where they can't, you know, an employer can't turn around so they can't work for somebody else. It's all within that whole shebang uh, of Matthew Taylor. How's this impacting you, Andy? Because I, I read as well that the Living Wage Foundation has also launched its living pension scheme. I believe there are 21 living pension employers committed to uh, building pension pots for their employees. Have you come across that as well? Are you... Uh immersed in the, the, the living pension scheme? I've not heard of that. No, it's good to know. I might look into that and just see, but that sounds good. Anything which promotes pension, get people saving as much as possible for their future to have a nice retirement would be good. I mean, obviously, the, the, there are implications for when you increase pay. So, you know, um, in terms of pension contributions going up and, and all that. So, uh, and no doubt... I think we even mentioned it earlier, alabaster and all these wonderful things could kick in. Um, but um, yes, I'm, I'm pleased they've got a concept yeah. of a. a, a on quite 14,000, let's say just 21 at the moment. The scheme introduced a savings target of 12% of a worker's annual salary, of which the employer would contribute 7%. So uh, watch this space. Mm -hmm. Maybe that'll be up to the thousands as well. It'd be nice if it was. Um, anything else you want to add to uh, to to? to to that, Richard, before we move on to, to holiday I think, pay? I think it's a few, I think it's a few payrolly, payrolly bits. Um, there's still, you know, because obviously we meet a lot of people, there's still confusion between the two. Um, no doubt, I think the fact now that it's being increased to a level where it is further away again uh, is in its own value because um, it has got very, very close to national minimum and national living wage. I think it's very important also to remember that it has no effect on national minimum and living wage audit or control. Um, you can pay effectively less due to deduction, for instance, or salary sacrifice, as long as it is still over national minimum or living wage. And we hear a lot of confusion where people are using the voluntary as the, as the audit point, which it certainly isn't. Um, and then really other things is its net effect on other areas. Andy brushed on it there, Simon did earlier. Um, it could create an alabaster scenario um, for uh, a lady on maternity. Remember, it's an increase and an increase in pay is an increase in pay 
during the maternity leave period. Um, and it's again, it's probably the one that gets picked up the least. Um, every increase to national living wage, every increase to the voluntary living wage should be mean you getting your maternity files back out again um, and revisiting them all. Um, because if that increase takes the original calculation, for instance, over the uh, uh, the LEL or over the average, then it could mean an effect on on the, the maternity payments made already. I think it makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Sure. Now, our good friend Ashley Dorman, who is a, a regular contributor to questions and uh, and advice, actually, we need an additional panelist uh, now and again for some further support. I'm not sure what this relates to. I must have missed the point. But he said, yes, we need to implement by the 1st of May 2024. Um, Simon's nodding, so I'm not quite sure that that was uh, obviously related to something you'd mentioned, but if that makes more sense to you. Good. Right, no, let's move right. on to holiday yeah, pay. Fantastic. I, I, I'm assuming this is going to relate to the Supreme Court, which provided judgment in the case of Chief Constable of the Police Service of Northern Ireland, another versus Agnew and others. I may be incorrect. I'll let uh, Simon pick up the mantle. Uh, holiday pay. Tell us tell us more in relation to uh, the Northern Ireland case. Well, I think, uh, yeah, we're probably all still very confused on holiday pay or if I'm not confused because I've know the working time regulations almost off by heart it would feel like these days because they get so many questions uh, so I know exactly what they say there's a lot of confusion coming in so there was a three-month period so if someone didn't make a holiday pay claim for three months they're out of time and uh, that was challenged in uh, the police authority in Northern Ireland uh, and they've won so that went through various layers of appeal uh, and uh, trial level and it went through to the uh, Supreme Court of the United Kingdom so the uh, judgment of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom uh, then applies the judgment potentially across the United Kingdom but there is a subtle difference between Northern Ireland and Great Britain and that is Great Britain has a two-year time limit for any claim and Northern Ireland doesn't so uh, you can go back ooh, 20 years sort of thing in Northern Ireland. But the uh, but equally, Northern Ireland had this three month uh, linking element uh, limit of saying well, you have to claim within three months, which the Supreme Court has decided is not lawful and that actually there isn't a break in the circumstances and that may affect everyone else so if you're relying on the fact that we're not really paying people the right holiday and i've got to say a lot of employers are not um you can't get away with uh, we didn't make a complaint within three months anymore because that's now wiped away but in great britain um, i'm suggesting the two-year limit still applies in Northern Ireland, there isn't a two-year limit. And the question on the two-year limit wasn't the question to the Supreme Court. Well, I'd 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 have I have to alongside Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, the reason for that with the two years, Simon says Great Britain, Northern Ireland, is the Employment Rights Act. Great Britain were very good and put that legislation into the Employment Rights Act about the two years. Unfortunately, Northern Ireland did not. So because of that, that hence it was in charge. Now, I would agree with Simon. It's still very confusing. We are, of course, still waiting on the outcome. I'm wondering if the Chancellor is going to save some great news in his autumn statement, maybe. Uh, it better be great news. We've waited long enough um, for holiday pay. Doesn't mean 
I suppose that somebody won't challenge it in Great Britain, of course, God forbid. But, you know, I think that's, and of course, if the, the, the Supreme Court in Northern Ireland effectively has set a precedence. So if it is challenged here on is two years lawful, even though it's in the Employment Rights Act, then who knows, maybe. I'm just keeping my fingers and toes crossed that um, this isn't yet another piece of complexity that goes with the nightmare of holiday pay. No, I think it's very, you know, there's a high chance we could see some change anyway. Um, obviously, because of leaving Europe, there's the whole area of 13 and 13A legislation um, and how that might be gone. Um, but principally, you know, could we see something similar to we are seeing in other areas where they will create a second new secondary legislation, perhaps, um, because of this outcome? Um, it's a hard one to call, really, because it's such a moving target anyway at the moment. Um, and especially, you know, the consultations that have been had um, and the position that it now sits at, you would certainly not put your house on what holiday pay is going to look like in even a year's time. Um, because we need more complexity, obviously. So, yeah, it's an interesting area. So with our crystal balls out, Simon, what do we suspect will be clarified or confirmed over the next 12 months? Uh, there'll be a general election in 2024? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, that That's the challenge here, is um, uh, we're now in a political um, turmoil to a certain extent that do we know what they will come out with? But I think the consultation question was the wrong question. It's just a personal view, but it was talking about entitlement and the proposals of, for example, allow, why don't you allow the 12.07% wasn't necessarily about entitlement, but about payment. Uh, and so the and they don't always equate so that still means you have to do the 52-week average it's just the entitlement that might be accruing on that basis and, and I guess the other aspect was potentially removing zero weeks so it's a bit of a confusing state however the working time regulations as now set is the law so will we get an answer or was was the response going to be so confused with the government that they'll have to rethink again what they do about it the aspect that comes out of the Northern Ireland case a little bit is when you get into the nitty-gritty of some of the small print and the periphery stuff is uh, confusion over what is euro pay, if I use that term, as opposed to GB pay or UK pay versus contractual pay. And I guess the difficulty there was if an employer hasn't set out the order or definition of them, um, you're going to have trouble, aren't you? Because an employer could challenge you on the euro pay for any of it because it was the euro pay at the beginning, middle or end of their holiday. And so there is still that. But also one of the connotations is actually to uh, all proposals that came out from government is that the entitlement for the United Kingdom or Great Britain, we'll have to see if Northern Ireland follow, is its 5.6 weeks entitlement, not 4 plus 1.6. So we then have to find out what goes through there. So have I got a crystal ball on what's going to happen uh, for future? At the moment, I'm just totally confused by it all. And actually, I think the proposal and consultation was even more confusing. Karen's laughing. Said, so would you have changed uh, yeah. the wording on the consultation, Karen? Are you, are you echoing Simon's thoughts? 
I am. I'm just wearing rose tinted glasses. Can I just say that um, in the hope that the crystal ball I'm looking at is going to deliver some good news? Um, and I'd be a bit flippant there. But genuinely, the consultation was confusing. Uh, I mean, I think I read it three times just to try and figure out what it was actually proposing and then try and work out, OK, what is it we do now? Oh, yeah, I forgot. Oh, no, this case law overtook that one and that one and that one. So this is why employers are struggling. And as Simon said, a lot of them aren't doing it right, but not actually because they don't want to do it right. There just is only guidance rather than law. So and this is why my glasses are both tinted, because what I want is to be frank, I don't care what they come up with. As long as what they come up with is sensible, practical and workable and clear that that's what we need, because we have had. I remember the Stringer case, as I'm sure you will do, Simon, when all this started with sick pay and holidays, as you will, Richard, as well. Um, so, you know, we just need clarity. Um, and I'm beyond the point of what that look, what it is, just clarity. Yeah, I think you're right, Karen. I think they built a bit of a rod for their own back and allowed legal case to create guidance beyond what it was needed, if that makes sense. You know, I, I'm sure anybody on here could name at least 10 cases straight away about holiday pay. And each one is different from British Airways to British Gas to Amex to Air Scotland. We can go on and on and on for 14 hours. But in each scenario, all it's done is made the guidance for variably paid staff longer. I think it's probably the only thing it's achieved um, when really if the government had their crystal background ball, they could go back and have created better legislation right at the very start where it's just been allowed to, I guess, not bastardise is a horrible word, but you know what I mean? It's it, it's it's basically reacted to Neon's cases that therefore have added confusion to the general public, if that makes sense. We need to reopen the office for tax simplification and just have a rethink on the way that we're doing things. <laughs> Problem well, is, Nick, all under... Yeah, it wouldn't fall under OTS, unfortunately, because it's the employment law side. So we have to deal with, I don't know, what's Bayes now? DBT, what, Department DBT. of Yeah, I don't yes. know how many times that's changed its name as well. Um, <laughs> clearly, they like case laws and change of names. But yeah. Have you ever asked yourself, how can I recruit payroll staff effectively? Please don't give up on your recruitment project just yet. Here at JGA Payroll Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top payroll talent. We also understand just how costly a poor payroll hire can be. JGA Recruitment are a niche payroll recruitment agency who will partner with you to resource payroll candidates who will improve both the accuracy and efficiency of your payroll department. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. To the next slide, which is disaster recovery. Uh, I think it's a subject we need to, kind of link, to talk about. They kind of link together, don't they? <laughs> oh, yeah, touche, touche. But I think we're in, a, we're in an age now of uh, rapid technological advancement, cybercrime is on the increase, ransom crime on the increase, and everything else. 
Um, there's a higher risk now of, of certainly for cybercrime, but it's not just about cybercrime, of course, when we talk about disaster recovery. There's natural disasters. I do remember a natural disaster, I think, hitting um, Peterborough Software, I think it may have been back in there. Was it Northgate? One of the big suppliers along about a decade ago. It's Northgate. Um, Northgate. Northgate. I remember that. That was a natural disaster. So it's really, really important that we do have uh, re- re- you know, reliable plans in place. And of course, it's one of those things we think, well, it's never happened to us. I'll do it next year or next month or next week. And lo and behold, you had it in your mind to do it. You didn't do it. And something goes wrong. So um, let's come to you, Cam, because you um, presumably are going to need a, a really robust uh, disaster recovery plan because you're not just managing an internal payroll. You've got client payrolls as well, uh, different sizes, different frequencies, different sectors. Where do we start? Do you have a disaster recovery plan in place? It's a bit of a loaded question. And um, yeah, where do we begin with the topic? So the answer is we absolutely have disaster recovery plans in place. Um, <laughs> yeah, and actually to the nth degree. One of the major reasons for that is we, we are so audited for a start. Um, every large client, and Simon, I'm sure, is going to sympathise with this as well and do the same, is, you know, as part of getting to know your clients and all the money laundering, whatever else, of course, the suppliers, we are a supplier. So the client, our clients have to get this from us. And a lot of that now, I mean, I came across one just the other day, something like 184 questions from a potential new client on our disaster recovery, our contingency, our data security, all of that. Um, so this is a real hot topic and we have to have this in place. And at AAB, in order to, you know, Simon said before, with money laundering, whatever it is, not only do you have to comply with it, you have to prove that you are complying with it. And part of that is that you train your staff. So I can say I have lots and lots of hours of my life that I will never get back from doing um, disaster recovery courses, money laundering, everything else, because it is so important. And if you don't have one in place and you are running payroll, whether you're in-house or whether you've got, obviously, it's really severe for clients, but if you're in-house, you will be in a lot of, you, you will be in trouble. You would not recover. Buntsfield, which I think is where it was many, many years ago, was a natural disaster. And to be fair to that company, they got things up and running pretty damn quickly, um, in all fairness to them. And it will be because they will have had a disaster recovery plan in place. Um, Amazing. I'm sure it's we more robust Training is so important in this area. Someone's just commented here to say this came up in my recent apprenticeship and was also part of my annual appraisal objectives, which was to create a payroll process manual, being a sole payroller, obviously very, very important. You mentioned the in-house payroll thing and a disaster recovery plan as part of that process. But you're absolutely yeah. right. It's the it's sometimes the smaller sole payroll functions that it can be a bit of an oversight. Um, but what about now with remote working? Um, maybe I'll come to you, Richard. How remote working? How does yeah, this impact disaster? Well, I think it's, you know, it's two, two, two completely different things, isn't it? Which you have to consider when it comes to disaster recovery for home working. Number one is still security. Um, you know, how, especially with a large organization, multiple locations as it was, but now home working as well, just how safe is your workforce technical environment you know are they logging on to tesco.com um for their internet are they using a laptop at home that they can just plug stuff into from outside 
you know, it's all these base questions are critical. But then the second side falls into the what you call disaster recovery, the what ifs. What if they live in Rettenden or wherever it was, excuse my ignorance, over last weekend where all of a sudden they're 30 feet underwater um, and all your technology is in their house and they're running the payroll? What happens if they don't have power for a day? There is so many forms of recovery. And, you know, it's all well and good having ISO 27001, is it? Um, which a big company will have. You know, we did it at the last bureau I worked with, where you have a fully controlled and identified plan. But a smaller business may not have the, the ability to do such thing. But I guess the other side as well is, I'm sure if you actually polled the audience, how many have a disaster recovery plan, you may find 60, 70 percent, maybe more. The follow-up question is, have you tested it? And I think... Yeah. And do people know about score, it? <laughs> the actual score would then go down dramatically. You know, if you do ISO, you're 27001, you've got to blow your office up, hypothetically, and you've got to set it on fire, and you've got to flood it, and so on and so forth, and send your people to X, Y, and Z. But I think that there's having a plan and feeling quite smug about it, but... Number one, does that plan actually work? But importantly, too, has that plan actually been tested in a real scenario? Because otherwise, it could be complete rubbish. Yeah, there's a famous Mike Tyson quote, isn't there? It's all, all easy until you actually get punched in the face or something along those lines. And it's a bit like that. You know, all think it's fine until it actually happens. Come over to you, Simon, of course. And a lot of people might be watching this and go, OK, I've got my ISO 90001 whatever it is, uh, certification, right? And I've got everything in the cloud now, so I don't have to worry about it. But of course, that's the cyber side of things. Ransomware attack comes in and closes your systems down. What do we do? do you know, we, how far do we need to look in terms of disaster recovery? What are some of the, the key things, key messages we can get out there to audience to, to get them to maybe consider when it comes to developing a disaster recovery? Yeah, sure. I think there is an element of thinking that you can't, only rely on your supplier and their disaster recovery they will have one and they will get back up and you'll know um uh, that, that sort of thing has been tested to, to a certain extent in real life for us here and the speed of return is uh, was great however what are you going to do in the interim and there's an element of thinking what if your banking system goes down etc how are your employees going to get paid so there's an element of you do want assurances from your supplier but no one is potentially safe from attack the attacks happen here and there and even some of the best security systems may end up closing the service for days and we see that with government even at times that you'll find that something is out of action for a number of days uh, it's not saying that they've lost anything or they've suffered in any great way but they've had to close the door until it's contained and evicted and so there's an element of what do you do so there's sort of minor uh, disaster recovery that you've got to think is if I couldn't pay my staff for a week and I'm due to, how do I do it as an alternate? Are there any arrangements with your bank? What if your bank doesn't work? What if there's other means that you need? So it goes beyond, doesn't it? And it's sort of thinking simpler. The other lesson I think learned quite often when things happen is uh, in theory, the recovery, even in test, um, can be at a certain speed. 
when it comes to real life, it'll probably be twice as long because uh, in real life, you're getting other pressures as well. So um, it, uh, try and give an illustration. I think sometimes it's an element of if you go through an airport that's busy and they've got slow down and you've got to get through security and you're in a rush to get your flight, that's one thing. Just imagine you've got six children all dragging around your, your legs as well as you do it. Now, how do you feel? Because that's probably more how reality is at times. It's uh, if you're on your own, you can get through it. But you've got to deal with your clients. You've got to deal with everybody else. You've got to deal with suppliers. You've got to deal with the press. You've got to deal with all sorts of interruptions, which slow things down. Uh, you know, so it's an element of be prepared for all eventuality. Sure, I think that the phase, um, the coaching phase, slow down to speed up, comes to mind there as well. Sometimes we're so head down in the transformation of what we're trying to deliver in payroll, implementing new systems and processes. We can sometimes get a little bit ahead of ourselves as well. We want to make sure that they're robust and you have a disaster recovery plan in place when we do so. Anything you'd want to add there, Karen, before we open our next poll? I would agree with Simon. It's a step that you don't think you need, you'll need. Go through everything. And actually, even better, get somebody who's not in your department to go through it because That's they're likely to spot a gap. Yeah. So let's get our audience back involved. And I want to find out how many of you have an effective disaster recovery plan in place. So three options for you here. Yes, we do. It's tested and we are supremely confident in our plan. Uh, I'm not sure, but I hope we do. Or no, uh, I think we might need to review this relatively urgently. Well, we're waiting for those uh, poll results to come in. We've had a question come in, so I'm going to go back to our panel. And actually, it comes in from Chris and it relates back to the new living wage rates. Uh, it says, does the panel know how this relates to salary sacrifice arrangements, i.e. to be accredited, do members have to receive the living wage once salary sacrifice contributions have been factored? For example, we have members paying pension via salary sacrifice. But if that comes to you, um, oh, whoever would like to take that question, on, that's a pensions related or payroll. So whoever oh, yeah, would like to take that. I was going to say, I, I did already mention it. Um, in principle, the, the voluntary has no effect, but obviously the national living and national minimum wage has a 100% effect. So you can sacrifice, for instance, below the voluntary living wage, but you cannot sacrifice below the national living or national minimum wage, depending on your age and circumstances. So it doesn't have an effect on legislation, um, but it obviously has an effect on income. Yeah. Fabulous. Thank you, Richard, for helping me with that. Well, let's have a see if those, uh, pod, uh, those uh, poll results have come in. And here we go. And for those in audio only, we have, thankfully, 55% saying, yes, it's tested and we're confident. 23%, uh, I'm not sure. I hope so. And 21%, no, we need to view this urgently. And that's what PQT is for, very much to bring these things, uh, bring more awareness to the processes we have in place around payroll to help all of you run more efficient, more effective, more compliant and more safe. Uh, payroll operations. Uh, let me come to you again, Karen, if you can uh, give me your commentary on these results. Um, obviously, I'm pleased about the, the tested and confident. I'm also really pleased about those who are recognising, yeah, actually need to have a look at this and review urgently. 
all I, my plea is for those who are not sure, please go and find out because, as I mentioned before, it's all well and good having a robust, tested disaster recovery plan in place, but no good if people don't know one where to find it and two what is included in it. So please do go and, and have a look and see if you have one. Yeah, I agree. I think one thing we're all passionate about is raising the popular poll I mentioned earlier. But what we don't want, of course, is a payroll in the headlines because of something we haven't done, like an effective disaster recovery plan. We've seen the news as well. You know, payroll departments being used sometimes as a scapegoat for certain things happening. Um, It can make major headline news because it impacts employees. And I know from the recruitment side of things, if people aren't getting paid correctly or people lose trust in the ability to be paid correctly, they may well vote with their feet and start to go elsewhere. So it's really, really important. Uh, this has a, can have a huge branding impact, uh, which goes beyond just the, the payment of employees. So I think that's worth bearing in mind as well. So if you're in that 21 percent, I'm really, really glad you've reflected and you're aware. And uh, as, as Karen has just said, go and review those things urgently and get a disaster recovery plan in place. Uh, Richard, can I come back to you again? Any other further uh, commentary on those results? Yeah, I, I think following on from Karen, I think it's, uh, you know, I'm sure the 21 percent aren't sitting there going, we're not worried because it could never happen to us. But, sure. you know, you you only have to look at the news every day and something different happens, whether it's, you know, technology is advancing quicker than we are. Cybercrime is advancing quicker than we are. Um, a certain Mr. Sunak um, had a little chat, didn't he, today about AI and how fraudsters and criminals are going to use AI more and more as a way of disruption and a way of control and a way of abuse. But then, as I said, the weather, you know, every day is a different weather. Every day there's an issue. You can't live in a world where it won't happen to us, even though I'm sure nobody does. Well, that's a great point. You know, we've just had a comment, which is, I think finishes off this subject really, really well. Uh, it comes in from Anne, who says, we recently had a major fire at one of our sites. The disaster recovery was initiated immediately and up and we were up and fully running within 48 hours. Um, so fantastic example there. And as you say, that's a, you know, a, a fire or something that could easily happen in, in any business. Um, so it's, I'm really glad to hear I they had a good disaster recovery. It's, it's almost one of the only positives out of COVID is due to the fact that we are now a far more mobile workforce. Um, the flexibility that is required within a recovery plan is now a hell of a lot easier than it used to be. Uh, when we did ISO back in, well, now 12 years ago, the fault of sending everybody home and ensuring they had a working laptop because the office burned down was an absolute nightmare. Because yeah. they just didn't have the tech. They didn't have the, you know, we had staff who didn't have the internet at home. You know, if, if there's been one positive of the newer mobile workforce is it, it, it has improved and eased our ability to have a, a better recovery plan. Yeah, fantastic. Well, let's, let's jump into our next slide then. We're going to talk about the SD Works Academy. We've got a number of, or well, SD Works, I'll have a number of free uh, sessions in 2024. Uh, the calendar is now live for you all to book onto those sessions you see fit. They've got a couple of new educators on the team as well, uh, Julie and Fiona. Uh, they're going to be talking about payroll benefits in kind. But as I say, there's a whole course calendar, which you can see at that link, which is for those in audio, is at sdworks.co.uk uh, academy forward slash calendar. So do go to sdworks.co.uk and search for the academy. You can find out more about those courses. But obviously, this sits within your business. Simon, I know you deliver a lot of webinars yourself. So I wonder if you could just bring these to life a little bit for those watching and those listening. 
Yeah, sure. So um, we're certainly uh, going out into the education market a little bit, certainly uh, tend to be aligned to the use of the SD Work solutions, but not alone. But so we've expanded into the HR employment arena as well, in that as we have Fiona McKee that's come and joined us from the HR practice in relation to her business providing some HR practice training. And uh, Judy Northover, I'm sure many will know, and recognized as a, an independent trainer who's also supplementing. People have kind of said, Simon, can you do as payroll training from scratch? And the reality is I'm the last person that would do payroll training from scratch. If you want training on holiday pay or, or salary sacrifice schemes, I'd spend hours with you. But teaching mm-hmm. someone to calculate tax, that's not me. I'm not saying that that's, there's anything less about that. That's just not my role. But uh, so we now have partners in that that can be the role. And we get a lot of requests for people to say, how do we do this and how do we do that payroll-wise and start off, we've got a new member of staff. And then that translates a little bit further because I think there's a general principle on the subject. How do I do it on your solutions is uh, the key, isn't it? Because SD Work Solutions will be different to someone else. So I think it's just one of those uh, areas of thinking. The reason, I guess, benefit payroll and benefits in kind is there on the list and why it's a focus is if you want payroll benefits, no matter who your supplier is, for April next year, you need to start planning now because if you turn up in March, you'll be too late because it's more than just the day's work. Uh, there's an element if you've got to think about it, you've got to apply, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, so, yeah, come and join us if you wish. And we've got our free uh, getting ready for 2024 sessions because, of course, the Chancellor is about to stand up on his feet and announced he's not standing at the next election. Oh, um, sorry, the autumn statement for uh, 2023. Yeah. So what the changes <laughs> are for 2024. Yes. Nods and Sorry, shakes going on. Yeah. Yes. Well, I'll sort of double add here. So just remind everyone, that for those listening in audio, these uh, a lot of these sessions are completely free. I think if you're regular to PQT, you'll realise there's a the, the connection between HR contract, HR employment law, and payroll is getting ever closer. So it wouldn't be a bad thing to get up to skill in some of these areas, whether it directly impacts you now or not anyway. And of course, as Simon's mentioned, payroll benefits in kind need to start preparing now. So go and check the uh, the academy uh, for such calendar, book yourselves onto the courses, completely free. And uh, hopefully that's good for everyone that wants to find out more. Right, over to you, Andy, who's been sat patiently, quietly talking and listening to everything we've been going through with disaster recovery or more. Uh, it's your turn to take the stage uh, with your pensions updates, latest updates, recent cases, compliance and auto enrollment considerations for people to think about. So, Andy, over to you. Thank you. Yeah, no, very interesting on the um, on the um, you know disaster recovery, business continuity plans, and all those sort of things. That yes. we went to one employer who just suffered and had cyber attack, and they didn't take the data; they just encased the servers in effect in like a force field so they couldn't access their systems unless they paid money to get access back and and therefore they were very fortunate they happened to have a computer a laptop which had the payroll on by fluke and were able to run payroll still so 
I was going to say, Andy, we can go back to the plans. I mean, we, when I used to work for large employer many moons ago, we every six months we had business continuity runs, no doubt, because the ISO thing, you know, we'd sit in as payroll. If it would depend what time of the month it was, it would depend whether or not it would. We were a critical system, which would then go to the offsite offices and restore the backups and all those sort of things. Things have moved on, so, but it is vital. And we will ask pension providers particularly, what are your plans over business continuity? If you're, as a pension provider, you go down, what's on your risk register, dear trustees? What are you up to? How are you making sure your employer clients can continue to make pension payments if they suffer? So it is what, you know, it's just that. It's just so important. Um, in terms of updates, um, I suppose things to think about are, which may impact on payroll, is possible data requests linked to the pensions dashboard. So the government have have said that the 31st of October 2026 is when pension schemes have to be connected to the pensions dashboard setup. And each pension scheme will be given a like a staging date, like with automatic enrollment, we're given a in guide this is in guidance, they'll be given a date by which they should be aiming to connect into this dashboard setup. And of course, what pension providers have to do is go and look at all their data for all their members, including deferred members, those who are no longer paying directly into the scheme anymore, as well as live members, and and just make sure that they've got all the data there. Have they got all the national insurance numbers, date of birth, are the addresses current, etc. And if there's any gaps, then they could be coming back to the employer to fill those gaps up. In which case, it's either going to be probably HR or payroll, which will be the source of that information to help the pension providers um, complete any missing information and correct any perhaps incorrect information. So that's one thing. Another thing is um, if you've got a relief at source pension scheme, like NEST or um, group personal pension schemes, etc., then... The way that that operates, I'm sure you know, is that the tax relief is given is 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 given to individuals by the contribution rate being reduced by basic rate tax. So, you know, if it's a five percent contribution, actually the individual have four percent deducted from their net pay, and that money then paid over by the employer to the pension provider. The pension provider then collects the equivalent of basic rate tax value, the one percent from the HMRC and that money then is topped is put into the individual's pension fund. That process is all done on paper in effect and it's going to be digitized. So it's going to become digital. Well I think during the process of doing all that, they're then going to realize that they've got people who have got relief of source schemes that are operating net pay arrangement and people who got net Pay arrangement schemes are only for source and all the rest of it. So watch out. Please go and check your payroll. Make sure you've got the right tax relief method. Because if you have, you need to fix it going forward and then speak to your pension provider and HMRC as to what you're going to do about the the, the, the previous contributions that are wrong. Um, so, but it will, I think digitization will probably identify more of those errors from an HMRC perspective. In theory, HMRC should know that FPS identifies net pay arrangement employee contributions separately from relief at source employee contributions. 
So if he's going across his net pay arrangement and you've got a nest pension scheme, guess what? It should be relief at source. And his dairy nester then claiming that money back from HMRC. There should be a link. And maybe the digitization will enable that to be far more effective way of looking at it. Um, but I guess the big news is um, obviously that the uh, pensions extension of automatic enrollment bill has gone through Parliament, Royal Assent, which, as I'm probably probably already know, is going to change the age at which automatic enrollment starts from um, down from 22 down to 18, and a low threshold, a lower earnings limit for those schemes that operate with a lower earnings limit will go from the current value, 120 pound a week, 520 a month, down to nil. Um, so the, the legislation is in place for that to take place. It's down to DUP. Once the minister says yes, let's go ahead and do it. Um, to to uh, to then put into regulations those changes. The timing of that and how that will actually happen is going to be um, is going to be a consultation with DUP any time now. Really, within the next, I would guess in the next few weeks. Um, and and so it's very important for everyone to have a read of that because it will impact payroll, you know. So when will so is it going to be April 25, April 26? It logically not be April 24. It's way too early. So April 25, April 26, or whatever it might be. Um, and is it all in one go? Is it going to be like age first and then other changes? Anyway, look at the consultation, feed it back, and think in terms of what's most practical from your perspective, and of course the employer costs will increase. And if you've got a workforce which is young, then you're going to have a lot more people who are going to be automatically enrolled in whatever that because they've turned 18. Don't forget you can use postponement and all those sort of things. There'll be a lot of information and stuff. Once we know the details, there'll be a lot of information. There will be plenty of time to get things done, including updating software to do this for us. As, uh, for Andy, as can I jump in? There was yeah. a, obviously there was a third view on the actual trigger. So has that now completely been dismissed? Because there was a few things going around about losing the the ten thousand trigger as well. Yeah, the, the trigger's not been. Yeah, the, the trigger's not part of the. Um of the change in legislation but i think there's a bit of i think people may have been getting confused a little bit with with the lower threshold the, but the dup have the can change that trigger and they review the trigger every year it's just that they stuck it they were tracking the personal allowance <laughs> and then they realized personal allowance getting more and more so they then just stopped when the when the personal allowance was ten thousand, they stopped at that point and didn't haven't increased it since that was good five, six, seven, eight years ago now. Um, but they can change at any time. And also, we don't mention the upper limit. There's an upper threshold as well, and that, that can be changed. Every year, DUP review all the thresholds and decide whether they want to keep it as is, check, go, take it up or down, any of those three thresholds. But this, this legislation is really saying, but the lower threshold now is going to go to zero at some point in the next few years. And the age will go down to 18 at some point in the next few years. Um, but it doesn't stop DUP changing the other things as well. Wait and see, really. Um, 
In terms of recent cases, I, I'd probably point you to the TPR website. If you go to the, when you go in there, go to the right hand, top right hand side, it says documents. If you click on that, it then gives you all the different types of documents. You can look un, under enforcement. Um, and in there, you'll see what we've been doing in terms of enforcement. So automatic enrollment, it tell you how many cases have gone through, how many escalating penalty notices have been issued. And, and it also shows that we have the power to name and shame employers. So if you're an employer that hasn't paid your escalating penalty notice or you've gone to, we've, we've taken a county court judgment out on you, then we will name we can name and shame you. Not we don't. If it's in the public interest, and we'll do that, um, etc. So you'll see there's a, quite a few employers named who have, and there's I think the top fine in this particular. It's every six months a bulletin is published. The top fine is fifty two and a half thousand, fifty two and a half thousand pounds that has been um, had to be paid or will be in the process of being paid. Um, so yeah, it just, it just I don't want you to worry about that because if you if you find you've got a mistake or you're doing something wrong, we'll help you get it right. And as long as you put it right, job's done. Nothing's going to happen. It's only when an employer does not put it right, despite being given lots of time, many many weeks to get it right, it's then that the fines will kick in. And um, particularly escalating penalty notice, which is uh, ten, up to ten thousand pound a day, depending upon the size of the organisation. Um, that's what we mean, I think. Well, yeah. I think the last bit you mentioned sounds a little bit like the way that it works on data protection with the ICO. You know, they're happy to help you. So if you try and just don't not disclose it or do something and hide something, then it comes out. You know, these people like yourself, Andy, there to help. So if you are struggling and you've listened to that and you think, oh, I need some support, reach out to Andy Nichols and he can help guide you yeah. rather than try and hide it under the mattress. And um, right, we've actually got time then for some uh, additional questions or hot topics. If anyone has any additional questions to ask in the audience, please do pop them in the uh, in the questions box. Um, I'm gonna bring something up that I saw from the Payroll Center news site, Richard, so I'll come to you for this, uh, which was there was an update on the 6th of October, uh, which related to FitNotes. So maybe not specifically related to payroll, but the government did announce an update to the FitNote or Med3 form, which was published on the 6th of October. It was published on your Payroll Center news. So I thought I'd just leave that back to you to see if there's anything additional we need to report there uh, before we wait for a couple of questions to come into the uh, the queue box. I'm going to have to defer it. Unfortunately, I wasn't here at that time. Apologies. That's all right. Deferred then to it's, Simon it's Parsons. Simon on Go, Simon. <laughs> I'm not sure if I could help much either uh, on the fit notes, although as, as one ping I did get, through today was the fact that right to work guidance has changed, but uh, I haven't even managed to look at that today. No, fine. Well, that's not so well. Right. Actually, we'll, we'll tell you what then. Cara has just put into the questions box. Apologies, because this is unrelated to topics. But so far, has that? Well, I didn't say it's unrelated. I think this might even relate to disaster recovery if you choose to respond to what she's about to talk about. Uh, but we've been uh, seeing a massive increase in companies receiving letters impersonating the HMRC. We've received a number of letters that our payroll provider has advised they don't think we're genuine and we're just wondering if this was more widespread. Anyone else experiencing something similar? Rich is nodding his head and I imagine it's probably across the, across the board. Well, there's some that I've seen on social media relate to actually a reclaim company, so uh, which may be genuine letters from HMRC to individuals saying that their tax refund is going to be paid to another company. 
and that company is named as a reclaim agent. But just be aware, if you've clicked on links and signed up or looked at uh, various tax relief claims or your employees have, they may just have signed up to an assignment arrangement, uh, which means every tax refund is sent to them. Now, HMRC have stopped new assignments from, I'm saying this from memory, I think it was the 6th of July 2023, but assignments that were entered into before, I think still in force. So there is an element of just be careful when you're clicking on things in social media about get back this and that for marriage expenses, etc., that you're not signing up to a company that will collect your refund. You may only get a very small proportion of it. That's some aspect, but uh, yes, I'm hearing lots of stories of uh, letters. Some of it is uh, sort of in a timeline type thing, Nick, because you've just yeah. had all the P11Ds go through and the P800s are all being settled, that uh, sometimes scammers uh, integrate themselves into genuine contact. They do. Make if in doubt, phone the recipient before making payment and things like that. One thing I'm going to add uh, just to this, because in the world of recruitment, um, this is on the rise as well. And there may be people listening to this who are uh, looking for a new position or maybe involved in the recruitment process. A massive scam going on at the minute is uh, people getting WhatsApp notifications from so-called recruiters. Um, and actually, luckily, it hasn't hit us yet, but it's hit some of my uh, recruitment um, owner friends where people are, are replicating, uh, trying to pretend they're from certain firms. And um, one thing to mention is a recruiter will never, ever ask for any money from a candidate. So if you ever have to pay for something, that's kind of your first warning sign. And again, like anything else, if you think you've got a, a message and you think it's from someone, but you're not sure, check in with that particular recruiter. I know it's not related to payroll, but there might be people involved in the recruitment process that gets a, an unscrupulous WhatsApp message uh, from someone they think is someone else. So do keep your wits about you on that front. And in terms of other news as well, I've just put into the, the chat. Karen's very kindly uh, mentioned a link to the fit notes. If you're interested in finding out more about yeah, that. I was going to jump in there. So I've, I've, I've looked it up now. <laughs> there you go. So He's smiling. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm quick. Um, so principally, the, the new alteration is around ease of delivery. So previously, it was a second. Well, I mean, originally it was a doctor. That was then amended to a healthcare professional. Um, so if you remember, it became the ability for nurses and such like to sign them. Um, and so I, have, I, I have seen the new one because it affected me. And in principle, now it's an electronic form that doesn't require the signature which means, for instance, that you can receive it from anyone. Um, the employer can receive it directly. It can be received through a portal now um, rather than having to have a form. So it's really just a alteration in requirement of um, authorization to allow it to be a electronic media and therefore be passed around a lot quicker and easier. Um, and it works. So, my, for instance, my doctor now gives you a link with a password, anyone can use it. You can go into the link, put in the right password and get that electronic doctor's certificate or um, return to work certificate without the need of the doctor's certificate uh, signature on it, if that makes sense. Super. So, so it turns out you were the right person go. to come to because you've lived in, um, and experienced it. <laughs> so. Another bit of news I'm going to mention, of course, for those that do subscribe or follow the Payroll podcast, this um, audio will be available on the show in the next week or so. Uh, another episode has come out this week as well, which features a conversation about bureau versus in-house payrolls. So if you're interested in that subject, 
uh, go to either JJ Recruitment forward slash the Pearl Podcast or go to Apple or whatever your favorite, favorite podcast provider is and you can get the latest um, uh, episode on there. Um, and I think all of our questions are pretty much done. So for those that aren't familiar with what Richard's been through, I think it's a privilege for me to say to Richard, if you can sign us all off today, uh, thank, uh, thank you, Richard, for joining us because it was almost not to be. And I'm delighted you were able to. Uh, the next episode is going to be on the 23rd of November. So please do um, register for the next session. The link will be open very, very soon. Um, I would like to thank everyone for joining us. But I'm going to let Richard say the final goodbye for this session. Um, but thank you for, for allowing me to host the session again today. Richard, over to you. Thank you very much. Can I say something important, actually, if I may? Of course you can. Um, many won't be aware that I've, I've suffered a, a major heart attack. And I'm very open about it because um, I've gratefully come out the other end of it. Um, I had no warning, no history, no issues with blood pressure, no family history with heart issues at all. Um, I knew nothing about it. I hadn't had anything happen to me before. Um, but if one thing has happened from it is I've got quite vocal about what people, especially men, um, are like. If you have an issue in your life, if something isn't right, if something doesn't feel right, if, for instance, you go for a walk or a run and have less energy than you should have, see your doctor. They want to see you, okay? Don't brush it under the carpet as nothing because me being proactive probably saved my life. And I think it's a really big thing to consider so don't be afraid don't accept what's not normal because you know what is thank you very much nick yeah thank you richard i'm so delighted you're still with us so thank you ever so much thank you everyone thank you for listeners thank you for joining us thank you karen thank you simon thank you andy and of course thank you richard george and we'll see you again on the 23rd of november that's all for this episode of the payroll podcast i hope you enjoyed our discussion today and gained valuable insights and inspiration to advance your payroll career or your payroll operation if you haven't already please please do subscribe to the show so you never miss a future episode and if you found this podcast helpful please take a moment to leave us a little review on your preferred podcast platform it's your feedback that really helps me to improve the show and of course attract new listeners so we can continue to raise the profile of the payroll industry for all finally if you know anyone who could benefit from this payroll podcast please do share it with them let's spread the word and build a vibrant community of payroll professionals worldwide thank you of course for listening my name is nick day please do look me up on linkedin and send me a connection request in the meantime i look forward to being with you again on the next episode of the payroll podcast real soon